Hi, listeners. It's Kate from the Spotify original from Parcast, Dictators. Like many of the figures we cover on our show, J. Edgar Hoover had a thirst for control that couldn't be satisfied until he reached the top. As the first director of the FBI, Hoover used his authority to admonish anyone he felt broke the law. But with great power often comes great corruption and even greater conspiracies. Carter and I are thrilled to bring you this special six-part crossover from Dictators and Conspiracy Theories on the life and career of J. Edgar Hoover. You can hear about more of history's most feared leaders by following Dictators free on Spotify. In the summer of 1963, all eyes were on America's capital. Buses shuttled citizens down the East Coast from New York and Boston to DC. The March on Washington was shaping up to be the largest demonstration of the civil rights movement yet. On August 28th, demonstrators gathered before the Washington Monument. They chanted, pass the bill, amid a sea of protest signs demanding integrated schools, suitable housing, and other ends to anti-black racism. Their calls were aimed at President John F. Kennedy. But Kennedy wasn't there. Neither was his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. While both men were determined to pass civil rights legislation, they were hesitant to speak at the march itself and stand alongside its leaders including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Perhaps that's because someone had convinced the Kennedys that King was not the man he seemed, that he was untrustworthy and under the influence of nefarious forces that threatened the soul of the nation. That someone was also absent from the march that day. J. Edgar Hoover was sure that MLK was a vehicle for communism and the FBI director wouldn't rest until he'd convinced all of Washington. Welcome back to J. Edgar Hoover, a six-part podcast special presented by Dictators and Conspiracy Theories. Over the course of this series, We're diving into the life, legacy, and notoriety of America's most well-known and possibly most hated FBI director. I'm your host, Carter. And I'm your host, Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last time, we left off with Hoover's counterintelligence efforts in the late 1950s. Today, we'll examine the effects of those efforts in the next decade. In the 1960s, the director faced an explosive new era and his steepest hurdles yet, the arrival of the Kennedys in the executive branch and the civil rights movement. We'll have all that and more coming up. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1956, the FBI created the Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO. The Bureau began by using COINTELPRO to target the Communist Party USA. The problem with COINTELPRO was it utilized a handful of tactics that weren't exactly legal. And yet, Hoover had no intention of stopping the program. It was his best weapon against the Red Menace. As we know, Hoover maintained hot pursuit of communism, or anything he could tie back to communism throughout his career. Even after Senator Joseph McCarthy's downfall, Hoover's crusade against the Red Menace continued. What J. Edgar Hoover didn't realize, or didn't care about, was that CPUSA had shrunk into oblivion by that time. There were less than 5,000 registered members, and a staggering number of those members were already FBI informants, an estimated 1,500. With this many ears on the ground, it would have been easy to catch wind of any developing plots. Yet, there is little evidence to suggest that these informants led to the discovery of any premeditated violence, actual violence, or efforts to subvert the American government. Despite Hoover's thirst for hunting communists, in reality, COINTELPRO wasn't so much a matter of national security as it was job security. According to Kurt Gentry, author of J. Edgar Hoover, The Man and the Secrets, it was created in large part because there were too many FBI agents with nothing to do. But when President Eisenhower turned the keys to the Oval Office over to John F. Kennedy, Hoover had more than enough new problems to contend with. When the Democrats clinched the 1960 election, it brought a wave of hope for much of America, which Hoover took no delight in. Of all the presidential transitions he'd seen, this one was the hardest pill to swallow. Hoover fancied himself a gritty lawman, and to him, Jack Kennedy was Harvard upper crust of the worst kind. Kennedy promised to uplift a nation in search of change, but his presidency threatened many of the privileges that Hoover had long enjoyed while heading the bureau. One example being his working relationship with the president. 
Previously, Hoover had been able to bypass the AG for direct access to Roosevelt and Eisenhower. But JFK brought his younger brother, Robert Kennedy, into office as attorney general, breaking this link. If we know Hoover, he had a plan up his sleeve, but it didn't involve getting closer to JFK. Instead, before he was even sworn in, Hoover took out his own insurance policy against the Kennedys. The director had a litany of secret files on the Kennedy family, and his tab on JFK was robust and unsavory to say the least. As Tim Weiner observed in his book, Enemies, A History of the FBI, Hoover may not have had a sex life of his own, but he had a deep interest in other people's, notably the next president of the United States. Hoover knew about many of JFK's extramarital affairs, as well as other scandalous relationships dating all the way back to World War II, when Kennedy was involved with a young Danish journalist named Inga Arvad. Hoover knew that JFK's history with Arvad could ruin his reputation. That's because Arvad had been a guest of Adolf Hitler's at the 1936 Olympics, attended the wedding of the Nazi military leader Hermann Goering, and continually fraternized with suspected Nazi agents. Though Arvad was married, she continued her affair with JFK while he was stationed in Charleston, South Carolina during the war. Only under pressure from Joseph Kennedy Sr. did their romance end. Not many people knew all of this, but Hoover did. JFK was aware that Hoover knew the intimate details of his personal life. So even though he planned to take on Bobby as AG, he knew he'd have to get ahead of any potential bad blood with the director. Kennedy made it clear that while things may be different under his administration, not everything would change. He told the press that he intended to keep Hoover on as director because, in JFK's own words, you don't fire God. Hoover repaid the honor in a most conniving way. During the flurry of inauguration prep, he sent a cryptic memo to the soon-to-be Deputy Attorney General, Byron White, and incoming Secretary of State, Dean Rusk. He wrote that the FBI had a, quote, carefully planned program of counterattack against CPUSA, which keeps it off balance. This might seem like a random thing for Hoover to bring up, until you read between the lines. Hoover had surreptitiously told the incoming administration that the FBI was running an illegal surveillance program, one that undermined a number of Kennedy's campaign promises. By informing Kennedy's inner circle about COINTELPRO, Hoover made them complicit should the details ever become public. In other words, if the FBI came under fire, so would the president. You might wonder why it matters, why the president's men couldn't simply tell their side of the story should the need arise. But keep in mind, this is Washington. Everything is a game of he said, she said. With this bit of leverage, it seems Hoover's new method under the Kennedy administration was to characterize the president's priorities, such as civil rights, as appendages of communism. And when it came to the civil rights movement, Hoover's stance was evident. 
As early as 1956, Hoover had made it clear that he didn't support civil rights. When the Attorney General of the time, Herbert Brownell, proposed legislation to create a commission to enforce voting rights and to help add oversight of civil rights violations, Hoover batted down the idea. His explanation was that the Ku Klux Klan was, quote, pretty much defunct. This was a bold claim. Granted that the Klan had an estimated 12 to 15,000 members at the time, and white supremacists had bombed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s home in Montgomery just a few months prior. The director also stated that a supposed decrease in lynchings in the South was evidence enough that the FBI needn't provide formal oversight. While Hoover's opinion was racist and ignorant, it mattered, because at the time, he had the ear of President Eisenhower. According to historian J.W. Anderson, Hoover briefed Eisenhower's cabinet on Brownell's civil rights proposal, but also inserted his own counterpoints. Eisenhower latched onto Hoover's claims and decided he didn't need to take direct action on civil rights. This vacuum of ignorance had dangerous consequences in the early days of the Kennedy presidency. May 14, 1961, was a hot and muggy day in Birmingham, Alabama. A Greyhound bus full of Freedom Riders was set to arrive. They were on a journey through the South in protest of segregated buses. Ahead of their arrival, Alabama officials anticipated violence and unrest. Birmingham's public safety commissioner, known white supremacist Eugene Bull Connor, called in reinforcements and not to help the riders. These so-called reinforcements weren't just additional police officers, they were Klansmen. Connor told the Klan members that the police would be on a 15 to 20 minute delay once the bus reached the terminal, and that in that time, they had free reign to attack the riders. Police Sergeant Thomas Cook who was later revealed to be a Klan agent himself, even told them, quote, I don't give a damn if you beat them, bomb them, murder, or kill them. Roughly 60 Klansmen were ready to participate in the attack. Their methods were as ruthless as Connor and Cook had encouraged. One Klansman knocked a newspaper photographer unconscious, while another ruthlessly beat a man who was simply waiting for his fiancée. And J. Edgar Hoover knew about all this violence ahead of time. Days earlier, FBI informants notified federal agents of Connor's arrangements with the Klan. Not only that, but after the Klan's attacks in Birmingham, the FBI paid out various Klan informants for their injuries and, quote, services rendered. JFK was briefed on the violence in Alabama, and you can imagine his outrage. Advocating for civil rights had led him to victory, and just the week before Birmingham, the Attorney General had promised to enforce civil rights statutes. Hoover's lack of intervention at Birmingham seemed like sabotage. Even though RFK was in every way, shape, and form Hoover's boss, the Freedom Riders' tragedy proved who was really in charge. The Kennedys would have to do much more 
if they wanted to keep Hoover in check. Coming up, Hoover and the Kennedys square off. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this podcast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. And now back to the story. During JFK's first year in office, he and Bobby Kennedy's relationship with Hoover showed clear signs of strain. From the moment RFK moved into his office in the Justice Department, he and the FBI director butted heads. Bobby was 35 years old compared to Hoover's 66, but RFK was unafraid to exert his power over the FBI. And he wanted to shift the Bureau's priorities drastically from domestic intelligence to organized crime. After working on the Senate Racket Committee for two years, RFK intended to amplify pressure on the mafia in his new role as AG. This was unwelcome news to Hoover, who had no interest in pursuing the mob. The director vehemently denied its existence until the 1957 meeting in Appalachian, New York, which turned into a public relations disaster for both the FBI and the Justice Department. RFK even prioritized the Mafia over the Soviets. It was Hoover's nightmare. Everything about the AG's behavior chafed the director, like how RFK preferred to contact FBI agents on his own rather than go through Hoover. But Hoover resisted. He wasn't about to be subverted by a much younger man, and he flexed his resources to make that known. He constantly reminded Bobby that he had the power to destroy his career. He sent the AG almost monthly updates on the salacious gossip he'd gathered on the Kennedy family and their friends. Supposedly, Hoover let Bobby know he was aware of his romantic affairs, And he reminded the attorney general that he was keeping tabs on his brother's current dalliances, too. The director tracked when JFK visited his mistress, Judith Campbell Exner, and when the president and Frank Sinatra spent weekends on the West Coast with sex workers. However, while both Jack and Bobby knew that Hoover had enough blackmail on them to bring them down, They appeared to underestimate just how invested Hoover was in taking down every person associated with their policy goals. The directors saw the budding New Left movement as a breeding ground for Soviet espionage. In his mind, anyone advocating for broader civil rights was an integrationist 
who threatened the moral fabric of the nation. This placed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the most visible advocate for the civil rights movement during the 1960s, directly in the line of Hoover's fire. Hoover had first initiated surveillance on King back in the late 1950s. He tapped his phones and assigned agents to monitor the Southern Christian Leadership Conference during that time. This surveillance was a slippery slope. Soon, agents actually burglarized the SCLC offices. The FBI went on to conduct 20 known break-ins from 1959 through 1964. As the civil rights movement grew, as well as Dr. King's impact on it, so did Hoover's file on the Reverend. King's closeness with the Kennedy administration fueled the director's resentment. He had the White House access that Hoover lacked. But Hoover had something that the civil rights movement lacked and that the Kennedys needed, surveillance intel. When Hoover increased surveillance on the movement, he pretended there was a method to his madness. In fact, he figured out a way to package his own negligence as a reason to expand surveillance. Even though Hoover had intentionally prevented the FBI from stopping the Birmingham violence, he cited the incident as a reason he needed more information on MLK. He thought that the Freedom Riders had to be one small part of a larger conspiracy, and they were following King's direction. This was despite the fact that the Atlanta FBI field office assured the director there was no basis to investigate King. However, as former FBI special agent in charge Roy Moore reflected, what Hoover's subordinate offices advised him to do didn't really matter. They would eventually bend to his will. As Moore told a younger agent, you must understand that you're working for a crazy maniac and that our duty is to find out what he wants and to create the world that he believes in. Hoover took a twofold approach to targeting MLK. He went after the Reverend's reputation and the credibility of those closest to him. The director intended to paint three of the men closest to King, his advisors Stanley Levison, Jack O'Dell, and Bayard Rustin as communist proxies. In early 1962, Hoover began inundating RFK with intelligence that suggested Levison who drafted speeches for King, was a communist sympathizer. Unable to ignore the director's constant memos, RFK soon approved a wider FBI investigation into Levison. Hoover could never quite explain why he believed some of these men were communists, but his assertion was enough. Hoover had Stanley Levison subpoenaed and his office bugged for six years. Yet none of the wiretaps seemed to have yielded evidence he was under the influence of the Soviets. But still, the Kennedy administration's hands were tied. Even though by spring of 1962, JFK reportedly admitted he wanted to fire Hoover, he likely knew that doing so would grenade his and his brother's careers. The FBI didn't relinquish pressure. It prodded RFK's aides to send King a message, get rid of Levison. And when that didn't happen, come summer of 1962, Hoover initiated a full-scale investigation called 
communist infiltration of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Meanwhile, as if to underscore his personal vendetta against the Reverend, Hoover added King to his Section A Reserve Index, a laundry list of people to be arrested and detained should a national emergency occur. Hoover's confidence was at a peak. In another move, he allegedly let JFK know that he was aware of communication channels between the Kennedy family and Mafia boss Sam Giancana. This certainly would have been information that could call the president's ethics into question. So, perhaps according to his plan, Hoover's pressure slowly chipped away at the Kennedys' outward support for King. When RFK heard King talking to Levison on the wiretaps in June of 1962, their conversations gave the attorney general great concern. RFK heard how Levison was able to shape King's rhetoric, and the AG's position actually shifted closer to the director's. RFK concluded, Levison influenced him. Their goals were identical, really, I suppose. But that still didn't mean Levison or King were Soviet plugs. However, if there was one event that turned the tide on King, it was the March on Washington. In the lead-up to the August 1963 march, the brothers knew the FBI would be watching King very closely, so they advised King to be careful and to distance himself from Levison and Odell. In the case of Levison, the Reverend didn't listen, and this apparently convinced Hoover that the event was communist-inspired. With this, Hoover submitted a new request for RFK to sign off on a series of wiretaps on King. When the request slid across his desk, though, RFK noticed something peculiar. Hoover had inserted his own caveat. The wiretaps covered King's, quote, current residence or any future address to which he may move. This phrasing didn't sit well with Bobby. It granted unlimited surveillance for the director to use as he pleased. Though RFK had allowed King's associates to be tapped until this point, this was where he drew the line. In the end, Bobby Kennedy's initial rejection of the King wiretaps was futile. During the 1963 March on Washington, local police bugged King's room at the Willard Hotel. Police shared what they got with the FBI, allowing the director to catch wind of the people, including women who weren't King's wife, who visited the Reverend. After the march, Hoover sought one definite move that would finally destroy King's reputation. He placed all of Washington on high alert. Then he tasked his aide, William Sullivan, with writing a memo on the FBI's official position on MLK. Sullivan was instructed to claim that MLK's address at the Lincoln Memorial was a demagogic speech and that the FBI must mark him as, quote, the most dangerous person of the future of this nation from the standpoint of communism. Hoover signed it, and the document was distributed across government agencies. The memo stirred concern among Washington, and Hoover felt emboldened to once again ask the Attorney General for wiretaps. Specifically, he wanted them at King's Atlanta home and the New York SCLC office. But he reiterated the same point as the last time, 
He wanted to tap King's home and any future address to which he may move. This time, in October of 1963, RFK warily agreed, with a caveat that the taps would need to be re-evaluated one month later. Evidently, this provision was largely for show, since the wiretap of King's home phone would remain in place until April 1965, and his office was tapped until June 1966. It might seem that this was a positive turn for the antagonistic relationship between the Attorney General and the FBI Director. But in fact, it was the calm before the storm. The nation's anti-racist demands charged on and caused a rip current in the Hoover-Kennedy waters. Coverage of the Birmingham unrest had gripped national news. Photos of police dogs and fire hoses unleashed on young black protesters made the front page news day after day. Faced with the issue of growing police brutality, RFK pressured Hoover to send more agents to the South. The government needed to quell the violence. This need for sweeping change had culminated in President Kennedy's June address to the nation, announcing he would submit civil rights legislation to Congress, including protections for voting rights. Hoover's response was unrelenting. He pushed back against the administration's support of civil rights, still insisting the unrest stemmed from a larger communist conspiracy. Hoover and the Kennedys had reached an inevitable stalemate. And all of this had a timestamp, because the 1964 election was approaching fast. With a new presidential term, Bobby Kennedy wanted the director out. He began telling his colleagues that they planned to retire Hoover once JFK was re-elected. However, what Bobby and Hoover failed to anticipate was that JFK's legacy would come crashing down before they reached that brink. When John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in November of 1963, America reeled with anger and confusion. Who was Lee Harvey Oswald and why had he done it? In the aftermath of the shooting, the nation expected answers. Someone would have to investigate quickly to find them. Naturally, the FBI was chosen for the job. And yet, from its inception, the investigation operated under one impossible standard that completely undermined its credibility. Hoover was never wrong. Coming up, Hoover changes the course of history. And now back to the story. As America tried to process the death of its beloved President Kennedy, the nation wanted a thorough investigation. However, J. Edgar Hoover had already made his conclusion. Almost immediately after Kennedy's assassination, he decided that Lee Harvey Oswald was guilty and had acted alone. And once the director made it clear that he believed Oswald was a communist insurgent who had gone on a sudden, unprovoked rampage to kill the president, there was little room within the bureau to challenge this position. However, there was a critical flaw in this theory, particularly when it came to Oswald's motivation. 
because it wasn't sudden and it wasn't exactly unprovoked. And the FBI knew about it. JFK was shot on November 22, 1963. But sometime earlier, between November 6th and 8th, Oswald had visited the Bureau's Dallas office. He was irritated that a local agent, James P. Hosty, was investigating his family for their ties to the USSR. Oswald had defected to the Soviet Union four years earlier, and Hosty believed Oswald's wife might also be some sort of sleeper agent. Oswald was enraged and threatened that unless the investigation stopped, he would take action either by blowing up the Dallas police precinct or the city's FBI office. The Dallas field office received this threat and logged it, but did not escalate any concerns, which became extremely problematic in light of President Kennedy's assassination. When Agent Hostie went to the Dallas police station for Oswald's interrogation, he was clearly in shock over the circumstances. And according to a Dallas police lieutenant, admitted point blank, we knew Lee Harvey Oswald was capable of assassinating the President of the United States, but we didn't dream he would do it. In a split second, Hostie had placed the Bureau in a very dangerous spot. His comment made its way back up the chain to FBI HQ, and Hoover was livid for two reasons. First, it proved the FBI was aware that Oswald was a security risk two weeks before the shooting and failed to report Oswald to the Secret Service ahead of President Kennedy's arrival in Dallas. Second, given that Oswald had already verbalized his intentions to retaliate against the local surveillance, it suggested the FBI had probably contributed to, if not triggered, his rage. All of this made the FBI culpable in the president's death, and J. Edgar Hoover knew it. After learning of what had transpired at the Dallas office, he suppressed any paper trail leading back to the FBI before the assassination. Anything remotely incriminating had to go. Agent Hostie even flushed the memo he received about Oswald's threat down the toilet. Then, Hoover ordered a conclusive report, which veiled the FBI's deficiencies and cover-ups. The report was thorough, but it was crippled by the director's bias. Plus, it divided up the responsibilities of the inquiry across two different divisions who didn't always communicate. One department looked into Oswald's background and possible links to a Russian conspiracy, while the other examined the details of the assassination. As William Sullivan later reflected, this gap left an investigation that was, quote, rushed, chaotic, and shallow. For instance, important nuances, like why Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald, fell through the cracks. But Hoover's report wasn't the end of the story. The FBI report was private, and America wanted visible pursuits of justice for its fallen president. Lyndon B. Johnson saw one option to put everyone at peace, form an independent panel to investigate JFK's murder, enter the Warren Commission. From the beginning, 
Hoover tried to guide the Warren Commission to the conclusion that he'd already made in the FBI's report. And he had an ace up his sleeve. The Warren Commission was denied its own independent investigators, which means they were almost totally dependent on the investigative material the FBI had already produced. Not only that, but a commission member, Republican representative and future president Gerald Ford, was leaking information on the commission's progress to the FBI the entire time. When the Warren Commission received the FBI report in December of 1963, the members weren't impressed. Some of their reactions included the following. Congressman Hale Boggs, reading the FBI report leaves a million questions. Chief Justice Earl Warren, it's totally inconclusive. It doesn't do anything. Former Solicitor General J. Lee Rankin, acting as the commission's general counsel, said, it just doesn't seem like they're looking for things that this commission needs in order to get the answers that it wants and it's entitled to. Naturally, the committee wanted more firsthand information. But, possibly due to Ford's intel, Hoover was prepared. He made sure everyone in the Bureau kept their stories straight when it came time to testify. So, in May of 1964, Hoover coolly told the Warren Commission, there was nothing up to the time of the assassination that gave any indication that this man was a dangerous character who might do harm to the president or vice president. Agent James Hostie's testimony shortly after echoed the director. He said, Prior to the assassination of the President of the United States, I had no information indicating violence on the part of Lee Harvey Oswald. A bold-faced lie. Behind closed doors, members of the commission expressed serious concern that the FBI was hiding something from them, But under pressure to complete the inquiry, and with no independent investigators of their own, they chose to agree that the FBI was giving them valid, if incomplete, information. So nearly a year after JFK's assassination, the Warren Commission ruled in line with what Hoover had insisted all along. Oswald had been a lone gunman who acted independently of any conspiracies. But the Warren report didn't address one critical aspect. Why Oswald shot the president? One possible answer to this question wouldn't surface for another 12 years. The FBI kept its knowledge of Oswald's threats hidden that entire time. Only once the House Select Committee on Assassinations was formed in 1976, four years after Hoover's death, did new information emerge. The reinvestigation concluded there was a high probability of a second gunman. It also stated that Hoover's influence over the Warren Commission had certainly affected its original conclusion. The committee announced, Hoover's personal predisposition that Oswald had been a lone assassin affected the course of the investigation, adding to the momentum to conclude the investigation after limited consideration of possible conspiratorial areas. An additional point of irony was that the committee was founded during Gerald Ford's presidency. 
Ford's peers had no idea he had been quietly leaking the Warren Commission's progress to the director, which only proved Hoover's power. He was able to make spies and allies out of the most unassuming men. Ultimately, Hoover had done exactly as he intended in steering the Warren Commission to its conclusion. However, even though Hoover had managed to band-aid a colossal failure publicly, his cardinal rule, don't embarrass the Bureau, had still been broken. Someone internal would have to pay. Ultimately, the director censured 17 agents for failing to prevent the president's assassination. Special Agent Hosty arguably received the most severe consequences. He was subjected to water torture. Then he faced a long era of probations and suspensions without pay. So long as the FBI had a reputation to uphold, Hoover's penchants for perfectionism and retaliation would keep every politician and government worker on their toes. And even though President Johnson had been the driving force in creating the Warren Commission, he knew where to draw the line. Johnson had worked in Washington long enough to see the chaos that Hoover could unleash. He didn't dare cross the wolf unless necessary. The two had always been cordial, going back to Johnson's days in the Senate. They shared a mutual suspicion over the Ivy League politicians surrounding them, or the Harvards as they called them, a moniker which JFK had almost certainly earned from the director. Now, as president, Johnson kept Hoover especially close. Because in LBJ's own words, I would rather have Hoover inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. This was a false sense of control, though, and it would catch Johnson on his heels. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll delve into the complicated relationship between LBJ and Hoover as their relationship was tested in the face of Vietnam and the civil rights movement. Among the many sources we used, we found Kurt Gentry's J. Edgar Hoover, The Man and the Secrets, and Tim Weiner's Enemies, A History of the FBI, especially useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Dictators are Spotify originals from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Carter Roy. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. 
Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.